Welcome to the Shortwave Report. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. The Shortwave Report is a 30-minute review of news and opinion heard on the shortwave radio and the internet in Northern California. Listening to international broadcast at home is quite easy. You just need a shortwave radio with a schedule of English language broadcast or a computer or smartphone with an internet connection. To help you with this, I'll announce times, frequencies, and website addresses at the conclusion of each series of stories. At the website for this show, that's outfarpress.com, you can listen to the past five shortwave reports, find advice for listening to shortwave at home, and find internet links for global news sources. Please check it out and tell a friend. In today's edition, you'll hear reports from Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle, Radio Havana Cuba, and NHK Japan. We will begin with Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. Deutsche Welle has a weekly 30-minute show called Business Beyond. In this excerpted report, the subject is billionaires. Inequality is rising to the highest levels ever seen in human history, with the tiny billionaire class doubling their wealth since the start of the COVID crises. Oxfam and others discuss how this gross imbalance could be rectified. The Stockholm International Peace Research Institute released a report saying that climate change is increasingly driving conflicts around the world, which saw armed conflicts double in the past 10 years, as did the number of refugees. Radio Deutsche Welle. They hold the world in their hands. An elite class of individuals with more wealth than entire countries and all the power that comes with it. Billionaires. Inequality is rising to the highest levels ever seen in human history, where the concentration of wealth in few hands is off the charts. According to Oxfam, the 10 richest people in the world have doubled their combined wealth since the start of the coronavirus pandemic, helped by soaring stock markets and our increased reliance on technology. Oxfam also points out that those same 10 people now have a combined wealth greater than that of the least wealthy 3.1 billion people on the planet. Do we want to live in a world um, in which we have such extremes of wealth at the top? At the same time, that world is one in which inequality literally kills. Yes, inequality leads to unhappy, unhealthy, unfair societies, but we've been able to show how um, inequality itself kills, like inequality contributes to one death every four seconds. Is that really a world we want to live in? That every billionaire is a policy failure. Uh, and it's important to say that, that that is not to say every billionaire is a bad person or a mean person we don't like or should go, you know, lock away in a cabinet. It's just a policy failure, right? Um, and by the way, every hungry person is also a policy failure. And those policy failures are related. They're failures of priority. So if the existence of billionaires is somehow a failure on the part of humanity, how do we go about making amends for that? Well, one way would be to take some of their wealth from them and to redistribute it. Basically, tax them. But opponents of those who want billionaires to be hit with extra taxes argue that we would put at risk the businesses and millions of jobs that they're responsible for. Now imagine you are uh, you own 60% of that company, you are in charge, you can decide about everything. Now you get a, a tax and in order to, ser to service that tax, you would need to 
uh, to sell, let's say, 10 or 11% of that company, right? Uh, so uh, you sell that uh, the shares, uh, then you lose maybe the control of the company. The company, uh, the, the new management uh, doesn't perform that well. People lose jobs. Uh, the economy loses products or services. Uh, does it solve any of the problems? I don't think so. An alternative to taxing billionaires is to encourage them to share their wealth themselves. It's a policy China is already deploying. Well, they have to give back, so they are doing good for the society on the one hand. On the other hand, for those companies, um, being somehow encouraged or forced to do charity is in the short run maybe hurtful. Uh, but in the longer run, they, I think, prefer this to tax payments because taxes, once in, once you have a new tax uh, for the super rich, it's very difficult to get to take that back. Alternatively, you can just hope the billionaires will perform their own acts of philanthropy. And that's something we do already see. Bill Gates and his then-wife Melinda pledged $15 billion to charity through their own foundation during 2021, making them the world's biggest charitable donors. But even then, activists seeking greater wealth distribution are skeptical of the motivations of billionaires. I don't think Bill Gates is in some narrow, cunning sense trying to, you know, uh, trying to score a few reputational points. I think he's genuinely trying to make the world a better place in his mind. The problem is, with almost no exceptions, the people in that class, when they set out to do this kind of do-gooding, even when they're earnest about it and, and want to do it, um, they tend to do it in ways that rule out any threats to their own power. Right? So you don't see Bill Gates saying, let's fix the American education system by taxing very rich people a lot more. Earlier on, we heard the existence of billionaires described as a policy failure. It begs a big question. Would the world be a better place without them? I think we have to be really upfront and really be quite clear to say that a world of such extreme billionaire wealth is a fundamental problem. It's an impediment to human progress. The billionaire class in the world is one of the, is one of the great threats uh, to democracy and, and, and human flourishing everywhere. Or have billionaires simply earned their place at the top of society and should be celebrated accordingly? Making someone who is a byproduct of capitalism and has done well through that uh, look like the enemy, I don't think that's right because, you know, you need these people for the society to kind of grow and for economies to do better. Billionaires are world champions in the industries. They just outcompeted everybody else uh, in the field. And they look at it as a game of business. And this is another motivation. They just enjoy playing this game of business. That's all for this episode of Business Beyond. For more from us, check out our playlist. Now, world leaders are not doing enough to prepare for more intense environmental and security crises. That's according to a major peace studies institute. The Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, or CIPRI, says the world is entering a new era of risk where environmental and security issues overlap. It says droughts, heat waves and other impacts of climate change are increasingly driving conflicts around the world. According to the report, while temperatures rose worldwide between 2010 and 2020, the number of armed conflicts doubled, as did the number of refugees.
And we're joined now by Margot Wallström, the former Swedish foreign minister and chair of the international panel that guided the research. Uh, a very warm welcome to DW. Good to have you with us. Now, the report uh, suggests that there is a link between worsening crises and security and the environment. Could you perhaps give us some concrete examples where these problems reinforce each other? Well, it's easy to imagine that a, a country that has uh, a lack of drinking water and uh, shares uh, uh, a water source, a river with uh, neighboring countries, um, um, and, and because of climate change, there is less and less water to, to share. This could easily lead to uh, social unrest and uh, conflicts and, in the worst case, uh, war. And we see that in, in many places around the world, but also how, of course, um, uh, some, some of these uh, problems lead to uh, people fleeing, leaving their countries. So we have so many more refugees and climate change refugees. Uh, so uh, I think that there are a number of these elements uh, showing the link between peace and security and growing environmental problems. Now, looking at the war in Ukraine, aside from the human cost, it's also destabilized European security and affected global food and energy supplies. What further consequences do you see on the horizon? Well, it's very clear um, that the, the Russia war in Ukraine uh, has also and already led to, um, I would say, a huge impact on the rest of the world. There is... Um, less uh, uh, wheat, uh, for example, uh, so people go without uh, bread in, in many countries and uh, other exports of, of crops uh, that cannot be harvested now in, in both Ukraine and uh, also in, in Russia um, sends waves of, of problems around the world. And of course, uh, the whole oil and, and gas export from from Russia also being impacted by, by sanctions and so on. So we. We depend on each other. We uh, understand that uh, some of these problems uh, follow a, a wind or a river, and uh, we just have to take that into account. We have right. to live with some of these risks. We have to avoid them. Now, your report says that institutions, including governments, are reacting too slowly. Briefly, if you would, what actions should they be taking now? Well, they have to cooperate, first of all. They have to make sure that they... They look into the future, uh, identify some of these um, these environmental problems that uh, can also have a spillover effect. And uh, they just have to think more long term and they have to take into account what climate change will will do and they have to improve their their planning and um, also in, engage, uh, be deliberately uh, inclusive, as we say. So talk to those people that will be uh, affected uh, and involve them in the planning for the future. All right, Margot Wallström, former Swedish foreign minister. Thank you so much for your time. Those reports were from Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle, which may be heard at a combined audio-video website, dw.com, as well as on YouTube at their channels called DW News and DW Documentary. On to Radio Havana, Cuba. The United Nations say that the number of people displaced by war and human rights abuses has topped 100 million for the first time. 
Ireland is hosting an informal meeting of the Security Council of the United Nations to discuss media freedom and to scrutinize the murder of Palestinian-American journalist Shireen Abu Akleh. The Israeli military has decided not to conduct a criminal investigation into the killing. Since 2021, the European Union has withheld a large proportion of its funding to Palestinians under the pretext that Palestinian textbooks need to undergo revisions. Radio Havana, Cuba. The United Nations says the number of people displaced by war, conflict and human rights abuses has stopped 100 million for the first time. United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, Filippo Grandi, announced the Green Milestone as he met with Rohingya refugees who fled violence and government persecution in Burma. Filippo Grandi told reporters, Much as we are all focusing on Ukraine as a catastrophic emergency, we must not forget that there's other critical situations in the world that need attention and resources. Ireland's permanent representative to the United Nations has said her country is hosting an informal meeting of the Security Council that will discuss media freedom and shine a light on the killing of Al Jazeera journalist Shireen Abu Akleh. Geraldine Bernazen said on Monday that all 15 members of the Security Council are expected to attend the session that will address media freedom and the safety of journalists, issues that have been highlighted by Abu Akleh's killing on May the 11th. The announcement comes after Abu Akleh, 51, a veteran Al Jazeera Arabic television reporter, was shot and killed while covering an Israeli army raid in the occupied West Bank city of Jenin. Al Jazeera has accused the Israeli army of killing Abu Akleh in cold blood and have called for an independent investigation. Witnesses and colleagues at the scene have said that Israeli forces shot Abu Akleh and injured another Palestinian journalist. The Israeli military and Prime Minister initially claimed Palestinian fighters may have been responsible. It later said Abu Akleh may have been mistakenly shot by Israeli army fire. Last week, Israeli media reported that the Israeli military will not be conducting a criminal investigation. The killing of Abu Akleh, a Palestinian-American and a household name across the Arab world, has garnered international condemnation. Condemnation grew after Israeli forces beat Paul Bears with batons during Abu Akleh's funeral in Jerusalem, causing them to nearly drop her coffin. On May the 13th, the Security Council called for an immediate throughout transparent and fair and impartial investigation into Abu Akleh's killing and stressed the need to ensure accountability. The United Nations Human Rights Office also called for an independent probe and said the killing may constitute a war crime. The killing of Abu Akleh is another serious attack on media freedom and freedom of expression amid the escalation of violence in the occupied West Bank, said United Nations experts on May the 13th. The United Nations experts said Abu Akleh's death came amid a high rate of attacks against Palestinian journalists and rising violence in the occupied West Bank and Gaza. Last year, the experts said marked the highest number of Palestinian deaths resulting from confrontations with Israeli forces since 2014. Under international law, journalists must not be targeted and should be protected as civilians. On the day she was shot, Abu Akleh was wearing a helmet and a vest that clearly identified her as a journalist. The Doha-based network has said Abu Akleh's killing was intended to prevent the media from conducting their duty. 
On Monday, the Palestinian Foreign Ministry announced it has formally asked the International Criminal Court to conduct an investigation into the killing of the Al Jazeera journalist. The UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, said he was appalled by the killing. A humanitarian organization has warned that the European Union's continued delay in distributing aid to vital sectors in the occupied West Bank and Gaza Strip is putting Palestinian lives at risk. With dire consequences for patients needing treatment at occupied East Jerusalem hospitals. Since 2021, the European Union has withheld a large proportion of its funding to the Palestinians, nearly $230 million, under the pretext that Palestinian school textbooks need to undergo revisions and changes. But, according to the Norwegian Refugee Council, NRC, the suspension of aid is paralyzing critical sectors and impeding services, including health care in occupied East Jerusalem, where hospitals provide life-saving treatments to Palestinians from across the territories. These restrictions punish terminally ill patients who cannot get life-saving medicine and force children to go hungry when parents cannot afford to buy food. Palestinians are paying the cruelest price for political decisions made in Brussels, said Jan Eglin, the NRC's Secretary General, on Tuesday. The rights group, which helps displaced people, said that at least 500 cancer patients diagnosed since September 2021 have been unable to access adequate life-saving treatments at Augusta Victoria Hospital in occupied East Jerusalem. This has led to avoidable deaths, according to the Lutheran World Federation, a global communion of churches which operates the hospital. Patients already under the care of the hospital have endured significant delays in critical treatment, the group said in a statement. Those reports were from Radio Havana, Cuba. Cuba's website is working well at radiohc.cu, though the podcasts are not updated. On shortwave, Cuba may be heard from noon to 1 p.m. at 15140 and from 6 p.m. to midnight at either 6000, 6060, or 6165. All the times I announce are for Pacific Daylight Saving Time, so please adjust them to your time zone. If you have questions or comments about the shortwave report or could assist me by supporting this listener-funded program, I may be reached through the website and PayPal or by writing to Dan Roberts at P.O. Box 1162, Willits, California, 95490. Please help me continue producing this weekly show, which I freely distribute to radio stations and the Internet, like a listener in Willits, California did this week. Many, many thanks. We will conclude with NHK World Radio Japan. Iran has vowed to avenge last Sunday's killing of a senior officer of the Revolutionary Guard Corps, accusing the U.S. and Israel of being involved in the drive-by murder. Then a combination of reports on the meetings of the Quad, which is Japan, the U.S., India, and Australia. They discuss trade and security in the Indo-Pacific region, with Biden stating that the U.S. will maintain a strong presence in the area and that the U.S. would use military force to defend Taiwan from mainland China. This shocked many countries and inflamed China. China and Russia reportedly flew jets near Japanese airspace and Japan scrambled jets in response. China followed with military drills near Taiwan. The Chinese foreign minister began a tour of eight islands in the Pacific beginning with the Solomon Islands.
China said it has no intention of building a military base there. At a UN security meeting, Western countries and Russia accused each other of spreading disinformation and making cyber threats since the invasion of Ukraine. NHK Japan Iran has vowed to avenge the killing of a senior officer of its Revolutionary Guard Corps and has accused the U.S. and Israel of being involved. State-run media in Tehran say Colonel Hassan Sayyad Horai was gunned down near his home on Sunday. Reports say two assailants on a motorcycle fled the scene after opening fire. Iran's hardline president Ibrahim Raisi linked the assassination to what he called the hand of global arrogance. It is believed to be a reference to the United States and its allies. He added that he has no doubt the revenge for the pure blood of this great martyr is assured. No group or country has yet claimed responsibility for the attack. Israeli media reports say that Horai, who was a member of the elite Quds force, had been linked to plots to attack Israelis abroad. We begin here in Tokyo where the leaders of Japan, the U.S., Australia and India have met for a summit. The countries known as the Quad are expected to discuss a range of issues from trade to security. Japan's Prime Minister Kishida Fumio is hosting the talks. He said recent events have underlined the importance of international cooperation to maintain peace and stability. Kishida met for bilateral talks with the U.S. president on Monday. During a joint news conference, Joe Biden stressed that the U.S. would not tolerate any similar action taken by China in the Taiwan Strait. Speaking again Tuesday, he highlighted that the U.S. will remain a major presence in the region. Tuesday's Quad summit also brought in the Prime Minister of India, Narendra Modi, as well as Australia's brand-new leader, Anthony Albanese. As the talks got underway, both affirmed their commitment to what the group of four countries stands for. The Quad countries are expected to have discussed China's growing assertiveness in the Indo-Pacific. Tuesday's meeting is also believed to have involved a discussion on how to counter North Korea's missile program, which has ramped up testing in recent months. Cooperation on pandemic recovery, climate change and space exploration were also on the agenda. Russia was also on the agenda. The leaders agreed that the conflict in Ukraine highlights the need for U.N. reforms. And Biden said the U.S. would support Japan's bid to become a permanent member of the Security Council. Kishida also used the event to say he wants Hiroshima to host next year's G7 summit to send a powerful message against nuclear weapons. During the news conference, Biden made controversial remarks on American policy in Asia, including that the U.S. would use force to defend Taiwan. The remark could be taken as departing from the decades-old U.S. policy of so-called strategic ambiguity on the issue. Are you willing to get involved militarily to defend Taiwan if it comes to that? Yes. You are? That's the commitment we made. We agree with a one-China policy. We signed on to it and all the attendant agreements made from there. But the idea that that it can be taken by force, just taken by force, is just not, is just not appropriate. It will dislocate the entire region 
and be another action similar to what happened in, in, uh, in Ukraine. The U.S. does not have a mutual defense treaty with Taiwan, but has maintained a policy of strategic ambiguity on the issue. The U.S. aims to deter China's actions by not clarifying how it will respond if the country tries to unify with Taiwan through force. Beijing reacted sharply to Biden's remarks. Taiwan is an inseparable Chinese territory and an internal matter. We will not tolerate any outside interference. The U.S. should be careful when it talks about Taiwan and refrain from sending wrong signals to its pro-independence forces. Biden's aides tried to tone down his comments. They swiftly issued a statement saying the U.S. policy on Taiwan has not changed. As the Quad leaders met, China and Russia reportedly sent bombers to nearby skies. Japan's defense ministry says it scrambled jets in response. None of the foreign aircraft entered Japanese airspace. Officials in Tokyo say they used diplomatic channels to convey deep concern over the incident to Beijing. China's military says it's conducted combat drills in seas and airspace near Taiwan just days after the U.S. president vowed to defend it. In a statement on Wednesday, China's defense ministry called the exercises a stern warning against collusion between the U.S. and the Taiwan independence separatist forces. It said such a move will only make the situation more dangerous and bring serious consequences. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi has begun a tour of eight countries among the islands in the Pacific. His first stop was the Solomon Islands. He promised continued help from China in areas including security. Wang's trip came after China signed a security deal with the Solomon Islands last month. He met with Foreign Minister Jeremiah Manele. China's foreign ministry says Wang told Manele that China firmly supports the nation's efforts to defend its sovereignty, safety, and territorial integrity. Wang told reporters the security deal is aimed at helping the Solomon Islands maintain social stability. He said China has no intention of building a military base there. On the same day, Australian Foreign Minister Penny Wong visited Fiji. She said her country plans to give Pacific Island nations more help. Her visit came a few days after Australia's new Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, took office. It's seen as reflecting a resolve to counter China's growing influence in the region. Western countries and Russia have traded barbs at a UN Security Council meeting. They accused each other of spreading disinformation and making cyber threats since the invasion of Ukraine. The Russian government continues to shut down, restrict, and degrade internet connectivity, censor content, spread disinformation online, and intimidate and arrest journalists for reporting the truth about its invasion. She was joined by France's ambassador to the UN, Nicolas de Riviera, accused Moscow of launching cyber attacks against satellite networks an hour before its military campaign got got underway in Ukraine. Their Russian counterpart pushed back on the accusations. Vasily Nebenzia claimed 
that a Western campaign of disinformation and manipulation targeting Russia has been in place at an unprecedented scale. He said that the militarization of cyberspace by the West has heightened the threat of direct military confrontation. Those reports were from NHK World Radio Japan. They are heard from 9.30 to 10 p.m. at 7355 and 6165 or on the web at www.3.nhk.or.jp. One of my goals in producing this show is to encourage people like you to listen to international broadcasts, get a global perspective. You will have to look harder these days because of the U.S. and European Union prohibitions on media. Every Thursday evening, I post a new shortwave report at the website for this show. That's outfarpress.com. At my website, you can also listen to past shows. Please consider making a safe donation online through PayPal. There's a link at my website along with the podcast link and get advice for listening at home. The shortwave report, which is now in its 26th year of production, remains free to rebroadcast upon notification. The shortwave report is produced and distributed off the electrical grid in Northern California using solar panels. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. Thanks for listening.